This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at CypherCast.net. And follow us on Twitter at CypherCastNet. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I am Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing two spells. With careful gaze of the Grigori, we discuss the green sun. And then with a distant light pierces the mist, we discuss the methods by which alchemists coded their secrets. Join us on the path of suns and we may uncover a secret or two. In the careful gaze of the Grigori, we discuss an aspect of the Invisible Sun RPG in detail. This time around, we're going to be continuing along the path of suns, and we're moving along to the second sun. In this case, the second sun is the green sun, and its number is two. Those numbers are going to be pretty predictable, uh, even when we get to the night night side path, but, you know, it's nice to at least reiterate it. So, Scott, have you read about the green sun? I have read both paragraphs about the green sun. There are actually three paragraphs about the green sun. So I apparently gonna... missed one paragraph about the green sun. <laughs> one paragraph is really just an intro paragraph saying, hey, we're going to talk about the green sun. So we've got, we've got two paragraphs to work with here, uh, which is fine because we're getting an idea of what the suns look like. You know, what, what sort of entails the, the different planes that the suns uh, rule over. Uh, all right, so the green sun is our second sun on the path. Uh, we started off on the silver sun, and we talked about its warden, who I don't remember right now, uh, but that's not important because we want to talk about green. So why don't we talk about the warden of the green sun first? Because each sun has its own warden, and the warden, we're not sure exactly what their role is at this point. It looks like they might be some sort of gatekeeper. They are also somebody who would help out Vizlay under certain circumstances. And how that's actually going to play out remains to be seen. But the important point is that each sun has its own warden. And I believe the Nightside Path also has a warden that protects the gates in and out as well. But that's not quite accurate because one of the suns, the the warden is missing. But we'll get to that later. I believe that's Indigo. So uh, the warden for the green sun is Cherulis. And Cherulis is the genderless or perhaps the all-gendered expansive beauty who watches over the green plane, uh, the green sun. Uh, Cherulis doesn't have a home, which ties into, you know, how the rest of the green sun works. There are no structures here. There's there's nothing going on. There's no home for Cherulis. There's no fortress. And Cherulis kind of wanders around and preaches and whispers sermons about purity and sanctity of life. So we're touching on one of the big aspects of the green sun here, which is there are no physical structures in the green sun at all, which is interesting. There are people that live here. Uh, There are nomads who wander the lands, uh, but people also will spring up out of nothingness. They will be sprouted from plants and flowers and things like that. Which is which is interesting. Also going back on to uh, Trulis and Trulis's all gendered. How would you how would you phrase that? Oh, you, you might say hermaphroditic. Yeah, 
so the, they that reminded me of one of the characters from Doom Patrol. Who who was that character? Uh, Rebus. Yes, Rebus. Uh, who in uh, Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol, Rebus was the like summation of three different entities, like a man, a woman, and this spirit. So here we have, you know, Trulist, you know, taking that idea once again. And hermaphrodism is a uh, common theme in alchemy, which predicts a little bit of what we'll talk about today, though uh, when our discussion of alchemy today, we'll not get to that aspect of alchemy at all. Uh, but it is a common theme from alchemy as one of the inspiring sources for the setting. Well, interesting. Here we have this this uh, verdant land uh, with nomads that travel it. There are no cities. There's no towns. Um, and it's forested fields and the wilderness is dangerous so when i'm when i'm thinking about the the green sun you know it it just seems like any of the vast expansive forests that you deal with in another game like dungeons and dragons or perhaps uh murkwood in the hobbit uh things like that so how, how are we gonna take a look at the green sun and pull this into our settings Well, it seems like a natural place for journeys to happen across. So this is like the Tolkien obsession with uh, kind of a journey narrative where much of his books are are actually moving from place A to place B and not so much staying in any particular place. That sense of evolution and growth and journey seems to be a major theme of this particular sun. So it might be a great place to take take a journey. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think another interesting thing might be this is a place where you're going to go to try and find something because you're not going to know where the warden is. You're not going to know where people are. You know, it's it's moving. It, nothing here is going to stay in one place for very long. Uh, so trying to find, you know, secrets that are moving about on the green plane might be something that you might want to run with. And I think it's it's quite vivid in its description of how anything that stays stationary is overgrown. And Mm, I don't know exactly if that's the stuff of an entire adventure or story arc, but man, that's that's the stuff of a great scene to take place. Yeah. uh, I think an interesting idea would be like, what happens if somebody were to try and build some sort of structure in green? Like what if somebody wanted to put together uh, something in honor of Cherulus? Like, what would happen to that structure in this sort of setting? Like, is it just going to be destroyed by the the wilderness or or what's going to happen there? Like, is it an offense to the green sun to, you know, make any sort of permanence? Is there a way to, if you think of this, the area as being overrun with vines and, and natural growths of that type, is there a way to shape that growth to make a structure that is still consistent with the growth of greenery? You think like, you know, elvish uh, tree houses or things like that. Could you create a structure out of the growth itself? Might be an interesting location. Might be, a lo- might be an interesting location, but I mean, how permanent is it going to be? Well, if it's if it's too permanent, it becomes inconsistent with the sun. Uh, however, if it's constantly moving and evolving and growing, uh, that might be consistent with the theme of the green sun. Oh man, that reminds me of like the uh, the traveling city that they have in Numenera, uh, up in the wastes in the beyond. Like, what if you had some sort of what if you had some sort of uh, living creature that would move through the forests that you know there it, it hosts entire 
biomes and ecosystems that you know from from a distance it looks like this massive moving forest but like once you get into it it's actually some sort of creature that is actually the forest itself given the reputation of the sun as not having any permanent locations that would be a great place to hide secrets yep it might be putting to... a hidden library on the back of a of a turtle wandering across the forest would be fascinating yeah, and I guess the idea of having a hidden library in green kind of uh that's not something you would think about because why would there be a library in green where permanence is always at risk? I also think of uh Howl's Moving Castle and there's some other, you know, vi- visual images of moving castles that I think could be useful to create uh you know, the, the inspiration for these sorts of stories. Yeah. Uh, so the other thing that I'm always thinking of when I when I've read through this is Magic the Gathering's representation of green magic and how it's you know verdant and lush and life and you know it's important to green to make creatures and make them powerful and the thing here is that Trulis is walking around the you know the green sun talking about, you know, life is pure and how we need to respect the sanctity of life and things like this. And that it seems like this is, you know, falling into that, Hey, green is, you know, green is forestry and leaves and life. And this is what we were going to be doing with it. One thing I thought about is when I think of, when I think of large green growths, it, it, it reminds me of some references uh, or our scientific documentation of the largest organism on Earth, which is a 2.5 wide, 2.5 mile wide giant fungus mm-hmm. that is one coherent living organism by some definitions of coherent living organism. And that might be a fun thing to play with in the green sun. What if, what if there, you know, if there, if there is such a giant fungus, you would have a potentially immense and rapidly growing organism and what kind of secrets would it hold? Yeah, it, whenever I hear about that story, I always, whenever I hear about the giant fungus being the largest uh, living thing, I, I always get this picture that it's just like one gigantic mushroom, but that definitely isn't what it is. It's more like uh, more like a root system, right? Right. Also, uh, root systems, uh, aren't those, don't redwoods have like interconnected root systems as well? I'm not sure, but that does sound familiar. Yeah, so I mean... I mean, we don't have permanent structures on green, but we do have we do have trees, we have fungus, we have things that are going to be laying down these sort of permanent connections to one another. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, maybe we're talking about uh, intelligent plants. Uh, so, ants and your gigantic fungus that spreads across the entire land of green. Like, Though, on second thought, I, I might want to reserve the giant fungus for the night side of the green. Yeah, that would probably fit a little bit better. So in, you know, a year and a half when we get to that, uh, we'll <laughs> make him, this topic may come up again. But within the, like the giant sequoias or giant trees, mm-hmm. it would be interesting to have the equivalent of the Parliament of Trees from Alan Moore's Swamp Thing comics. These ancient, sentient trees that take the protection of either this sun or maybe multiple suns as part of their charge. So what you're saying is Swamp Thing is another thing we should be talking about at some point? 
Maybe. Uh, I c- it would not take much to persuade me to read the Alan Moore run of Swamp Thing again. Yeah, I thought Higgy had an interesting take on Swamp Thing because uh, he made him into an elemental creature. Was that surreal? Would that fit into our Invisible dis- Sun discussions? I think parts of it would. Okay. If that is a, a sufficiently committal answer. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's better than nothing. <laughs> uh, I'll have to think about that and get back to you on on maybe focusing on a particular trade paperback. Yeah, so green, I'm I'm kind of stuck in a rut on green because I guess we don't have a whole lot of information about it, and the information is pretty stereotypical of any sort of representation of green, green magic, green life, and things like that. It is somewhat a stereotypical nature unbound setting. Yeah. But those are convenient settings to have around. Yeah, they're definitely convenient because there's all sorts of fun things to put into a forest. But I will throw out another idea for a story that might build on this an unbound green notion that to yeah. maybe cap us off uh, to explore that, you know, again, based upon no knowledge of how these suns interact. What if the growth goes unchecked and begins to endanger the boundaries between suns? What if the green sun's greenery begins to overflow into the other suns? That sounds like a potentially interesting story element. Well, and they don't have any gateway that uh, protects this sun. So if there's nothing checking to make sure you're coming in or out, like, who knows? Maybe growth out is not that big a deal. It could be, especially if the connections between suns are potentially conceptual, that the growth in the greenery of the green sun may reach some critical threshold and it is sufficient if the warden is for some reason limited, detained, or distracted, uh, that conceptual connection may start to impede upon other suns. Yeah. I I really wonder what the warden's roles on these suns is going to be. Because uh, later on, as I was reading through it, uh, the wardens, some of them are referred to as gods. Uh, but I don't remember if it was clear that they were gods when we were looking at the silver sun. And it's definitely not something that comes up in the green sun. Uh, you know, I was thinking at first they were patrons, but it seems like there's a lot more. They have a lot more power than than this suggests. Well, the term god implies a lot about the nature of magic and reality that we don't know much about. They, The wardens are also patrons that you can uh, ask for help when you're trying to do certain magic rituals. Which historically are a function gods have served. Mm-hmm. So the terms may be to some degree interchangeable, depending upon the metaphysics of the setting. Yeah. I I am curious. I, I'm hoping we get some more information on that pretty soon. Though I, I don't think any information is coming anytime soon. I wouldn't expect it before our next episode. No, definitely not. But this has provided, even from three paragraphs of material on the green sun, uh, a, an interesting discussion of directions one could take, just keywords and concepts from this description uh, to create stories, or elements of stories for an Invisible Sun campaign. Yeah, I think uh, when we come up to the Blue Sun, uh, which will be our next sun on the path, uh, one of the things I'm going to be doing is at least coming up with some ideas about, you know, what are what could we do on the Blue Sun? How can we pull this into a campaign and actually run with it? Uh, like, 
what inspirations can we pull from uh, things like, for example, here we had uh, Swamp Thing and uh, Tolkien Fantasy. Like, what, what can we pull in and actually do with the other paths or other suns on the path? In A Distant Light Pierces the Mist, we discuss inspirations for our Invisible Suns games. Today, we will discuss some of the techniques that historical alchemists use to conceal their secret techniques. I chose this subject because it gets back to the role of secrets in Invisible Sun, a key theme in the game as a whole. My discussion will focus largely on work drawn from Lawrence Principi's The Secrets of Alchemy, from the University of Chicago Press. This was an excellent book on the history of alchemy, and in particular, how alchemists kept secrets and evidence about how the, about the connection between actual alchemical practice and the workings of chemical processes and the difficult-to-distinguish early history of chemistry and alchemy. This is particularly useful for an Invisible Sun game in that the techniques that alchemists used were... They varied across time, but often did not require specific technologies. So it's not necessarily about advanced cryptography or the sorts of technological solutions for keeping secrets that are the focus today, but instead low-tech strategies for keeping uh, secrets such that you could communicate knowledge and you could still teach people alchemy. You could still converse with other alchemists to share knowledge, but that you could be reasonably assured that the uninitiated wouldn't be able to pick up the same information and run off with it uh, and use it for purposes that you would not like them to use it for. So you could keep knowledge limited to the particular audience you wanted without, uh, but still publish it. So I want to focus on three of the techniques that I noticed in this particular book. The first is associated with the German term decknomen. This is just a German term for what we might use in English, uh, the term code names. It's a substitute name for a particular subject. So you re replace the ingredients in a chemical formula with some symbolic representation that isn't actually the chemical you're using, but that other alchemists would know stood for that particular chemical. An example is that a common substitute for the element iron was Mars, like the planet Mars or the Roman god Mars. So you might have a sentence that said something about Mars as a god and how Mars did something, but you would know that a trained alchemist would read that to mean, oh, this person's talking about iron. This must mean I'm supposed to use iron in some way suggested by this action attributed to Mars. Or maybe you refer to the, the material of the planet Mars. And you don't actually mean a chunk of the planet Mars. You mean a piece of iron. But only other alchemists would have been tipped off that this particular name substitution was useful. Uh, in fact, they had substitutions for most of the major uh, chemicals used in alchemy and associated them with different uh, astrological or astronomical phenomenon. So we're talking about very simple ciphers here, aren't we? Absolutely. Uh, I guess not very simple. Like, you need to have a knowledge of the subject, but we're talking about ciphers. Um, not not C-Y-P-H-E-R-S, but C-I-P-H-E-R-S. 
Right. These are one-to-one -one substitutions usually, and they're substitutions with some symbolic linkage, so they're not random. I mean, it would be a whole lot harder to decode these texts if only alchemists knew that iron was substituted for the random, some random seven-digit number. Okay. Yeah, when I was reading through the show notes, I was like, all right, alchemy. We're going to talk about uh, those, those demonic symbols that they have on the Path of Suns and see how that ties in. But that's more that's more demonology than it is alchemy. So this is this is keeping secrets and sharing knowledge with other people that know what you're talking about. Yeah, for this segment, yes, awesome. Uh, there is room for for other discussion of alchemists. Alchemy is a, is a huge and broad subject. Mm -hmm. So some of the symbols are in the invisible sun. Uh, visual representations are suspiciously close to actual alchemical symbols for say sulfur or silver or things like that mm -hmm. though they they do look a lot more like demonological symbols to me than the alchemical symbols but it's close enough that a discussion of alchemical symbolism might be useful uh, i worry that visual the discussions of visual symbols is very hard in podcast format yeah that might be a really good discussion for the blog post uh, so going back to the Decnomen, uh, now pulling something like this into your Invisible Sun campaign, one of the challenges I can see is what is the common language that you're going to be speaking with your players? Like, how are they going to pick up on an encoded message in this game? Uh, because if you were, if we were alchemists and we were talking about how to change iron into gold hey, we'd be talking about Mars, and we'd both know what's up. But how do you get your players to start understanding some sort of hidden message that you're trying to give them? It depends on how layered you want it to be. Within a one-shot or a short, short sequence, you might just tell them, oh, by the way, uh, you know, in scene one, you learn that element that, that that iron is represented by references to mars and so you just present them with the one-to-one -one reference mm -hmm. for a longer if you want to roll out the slow discovery of these secrets you might instead say early on in a campaign that you learn that this particular community of uh, vislay have often referred substituted uh, like let's say let's say a group of, of makers uh, they want to keep their materials a secret, so they have substituted elements for planets, just like actual alchemists did. And you don't tell them necessarily which ones, but you might give them one or two as examples that they uncover early on and let them try to figure out, well, we, 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 we learned in one of the diaries that, that Mars actually stands for iron, or we mm -hmm. found a, uh, a, a container that included iron fillings and had the Mars symbol on it. Later, they've got to figure out, well, what does that imply that Venus means in this in this maker uh, recipe that we found? And so you could stretch out that discovery over a longer period of time, but make it seem interesting because the substitutions were within a particular domain. And they would at least know that we're talking about element to planet substitutions rather than looking at any particular word. Any random word could potentially be a decnomen. Oh man, uh, we should we should work on something for this, um, Troy. You should probably stop listening to this because I'm going to use this. <laughs> the mind boggles, huh? Well, it's it's falling right in line with uh, the this 
little game that I'm running for my players right now in the lead up to Invisible Sun. Uh, and part of that is deciphering codes and figuring out uh, secret messages and tracking down stuff in the real world. So putting together a puzzle that's based off of this sort of idea, I think would be right up their alley. Excellent. And I think it's useful for our type of storytelling in particular because it doesn't bring games to a complete halt as you you, you use more advanced cryptographic techniques that mm -hmm. include like substitution algorithms or other things where you would expect the recipient to have like a key to employ. Yes. This had to rely on a much broader uh, strategy where you could basically teach other people to look out for these substitutions by theme. But it was still secret enough that people reading it wouldn't automatically pick up on the theme. Yeah, and that's that's the thing I've been uh, trying to figure out is how do I teach how do I teach my players the rules to figure out the messages? And like there there's a whole game there that you have to figure out. One place I would investigate, but I have not yet, so who knows if this is a good advice, is escape rooms. And how people design escape rooms, because this sounds like the sort of thing that escape rooms often use. Yeah, uh, we will we will be doing an escape room in December. Excellent. It's, it's an annual tradition. We've started picking those up in uh, in Oklahoma. Whenever my wife comes up to visit, we go with friends to an escape room. It's it's a great time. But you see these sorts of of, of puzzles and code name substitutions mm -hmm. in those a lot. So if you look at forums where people are talking about developing escape room puzzles, uh, or hopefully not spoiling your potential experiences, but talking about the strategies for developing escape room puzzles, you might find a very good community there. So that might also apply very directly to pulling the Decnomen concept into your campaign. Yes. All right. Uh, so not to get too far off of the, the you know central thrust of this subject, what else do we have for alchemy? The So if Decnomen represent word place or word replacements and substitutes a second strategy that principi uh, emphasizes is what he calls emblems this is the use of symbolic imagery to communicate a process so this is that dangerous territory where i have to like talk about a picture um, but trust me it won't be so bad and i'll provide some links in the show notes where if you want to look this up uh, but it'll, it's easy to kind of get a sense of what this would represent. So instead of using code words to represent a process uh, or an element in a process, you represent that process through symbolic imagery. And one of the most famous examples of this is referred to as the 12 keys of Basil Valentine. Uh, this is a great thing to Google if you're interested. I'll provide a, sh a, a link in the notes, uh, but it'll just be a link to the Wikipedia page, so I'm not doing a whole lot of work for you. You could just do this very easily. Just ignore my typing. <laughs> the 12 keys of Basil Valentine are uh, a series of images that are purported to describe the process of creating a philosopher's stone. And I won't go into details of all the images. Just to provide one example from these images uh, is... One part of one of these images is a wolf jumping over a fire. And Prinkempe argues that the wolf was actually known to represent particular elements. I believe it was Mar uh, Mars uh, and thus iron, but I'm not positive on that exact elemental association. But just like you'd have a replacement for a word, you have a replacement for an image. And so if, if iron means a wolf and a wolf is jumping over a fire, 
that tips off a knowledgeable reader that, oh, this process involves heating iron. Okay. Uh, you might have other elements that are that are connected to each other. So you have a king and a queen that likely represented gold and silver. Well, they might be holding hands, indicate linking them together. So you can use visual representations of symbolic uh, uh, substitutes for the actual elements to describe a process, just as you would a, provide a verbal description of that process. But the Im images might be harder to interpret uh, uh, for most time, it's harder to communicate and spread those images, uh, but that also might make them more secure. Uh, I just want to just want to shout out to Troy one more time. Hey, dude, I need you to tell Trina that she is going to have to learn blacksmithing. <laughs> yeah, these these images um, are really interesting. Uh, and like tarot cards, they are complex visual images that you could get a lot out of. And part of the of the trick to interpreting these emblems is knowing where to look and which parts of the image is signal and which part is noise, mm -hmm. which elements of the image are meaningful representations of parts of the physical process of creating a philosopher's stone versus the distracting parts of the image that are just a designed to throw off those who don't know the alchemist's visual language from the process. So it, it totally plays that I'm making inside jokes on this, right? Oh, absolutely. It's, and it's the very thematically appropriate. <laughs> yeah, you could have this tail the Im these images tailored. Now, um, I'm not artistically inclined, so I would recommend borrowing images, maybe using the 12 keys of Basil Valentine. In fact, I'm actually doing that with my playtest group right now for a cipher system game. Cool. Because this the 12 keys are so evocative and we're talking specifically about alchemy. So I can just borrow those images because I, I can't draw anything to save my life. But if you have an artist or are an artist, making your own similar sorts of images to uh, code your messages would be really cool. I only ask that you share them. <laughs> it would be really cool, but it that sounds uh, so much harder than using the Decnomen in play. Yes, that's why for the for these purposes, I would recommend using existing images mm -hmm. and then maybe repurposing those images or their symbolic representations because creating whole new images for each clue is ambitious. A little bit. The last technique I wanted to talk about uh, from The Secrets of Alchemy is the alchemical approach to the diffusion of knowledge. This is... Um, a different type of way to keep a secret, but it's an interesting one. And I think it, it suggests a, a potential story arc for an invisible sun game. Alchemists, again, were very protective of their knowledge. They didn't want anyone to just be able to pick up a book and learn alchemy. They wanted to make sure that only people who were taught by alchemists and part of their social network would actually learn alchemy. However, they also wanted to publish books. They wanted to be able to use books to spread their knowledge to those people that they wanted to share their knowledge with. So they had to figure out, how do I simultaneously write a book but not make this knowledge accessible? One way they did this was to produce multiple versions of their books, none of which were absolutely correct, all of which had errors in them, 
but that had little tips to indicate to knowledgeable readers which parts of the process was true and which parts of it were false. So a naive reader would get a book, and it would look a lot like the other versions of the book. They would all describe, say, a 12-stage process for creating a Philosopher's Stone. But none of the two would be the same. And only an alchemist would be able to read through these books and realize, oh, in this version, step one is correct. In that version, step two is correct. And you'd have to collect six versions in order to get all of the 12 steps in their correct versions. So alchemy is real. We just haven't pieced the books together correctly. Well, undoubtedly, alchemy was a real discipline that people thought they were practicing. <laughs> Whether there was success in converting elements, base elements into gold, or whether that was even the real purpose of the alchemists, which we may get back to in another segment, uh, is open to question. Uh, but yes, uh, it the, this suggests that the failure of any particular book may not be an indication of the failure of alchemy. It may be our partial understanding of even a particular author's approach to alchemy. And as a plug for The Secrets of Alchemy, uh, Principi, the author, is also uh, a part-time chemist. He has a joint appointment in the Department of Chemistry. And uh, parts of the book involve him actually testing some of the processes that are discussed in alchemical texts and talking about when they work and when they don't and when some of the interpretations have to be taken liberally when some of the processes were thought to be debunked but were in fact actually work or were actually useful if you use the sort of material they had available to them in say the 14th century hmm. so it's a really interesting book from a chemistry perspective in addition to a historical alchemy book he also has a, a very appropriate name for an alchemy book. It's a almost too much on the nose, <laughs> but I believe this is his real name, and he's actually a professor of the philosophy of science with a joint appointment in uh, in chemistry. And at let's see, he is the Drew Professor of the Humanities in the Department of History of Science and Technology, and the Department of Chemistry at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, my understanding is that Johns Hopkins is a reputable academic institution. Uh, that's what I've heard. <laughs> so um, he, he's uh, he's accomplished. Cool. Uh, an example of this you can look at in fiction. Uh, actually, comes from uh, the, the best example I can think of comes from a movie uh, called The Ninth Gate with Johnny Depp. Um, I believe we looked it up. It was nineteen ninety nine. Is that right? Yes. Which is when I saw it, and I don't remember anything about it. Well, I won't quiz you much. Nor do I. Well, I'm spoiling a bit just by mentioning it here. So. Um, if you want to watch that movie, uh, stop listening now and come back to it after you watch that movie. It's one of my wife's favorite occult movies. In brief, I'm not going to talk long about this, but uh, it's Johnny Depp plays a, a person who acquires rare books. And a collector notices that there's a particularly rare book that he wants. Uh, and so he sends Johnny Depp off to get it. Johnny Depp notices multiple versions of the same book and then has to try to figure out why are there multiple versions of this book, and is one of them or some combination of them true? And so mm -hmm. that's where the notion of this uh, diffusion strategy of the, of the alchemists comes in handy, because, as you can imagine, it, the, the solution involves combining multiple books and pieces from each of the books to reach the truth. That's a significant but not total spoiler. 
because uh, there's more to it than that. But uh, it's uh, I really like the movie, and it illustrates this process pretty well. Yeah, I'll probably have to track it down and give it another watch. I think this could serve as the basis for a story arc or a mini campaign in Invisible Sun because it show, it gives you a series of objectives. So the players might need to first figure out where is this knowledge, what, what book is this knowledge held in? Where is the secret contained? Then they find out, oh, that book you have that you've, you quested to get, it's only one of multiple copies. So then they have to get all of the other copies and finally, they have to figure out how do they combine these various copies to, to identify the true secret held within that knowledge spread across and distorted in the multiple versions. But that sounds like a, a nice little three-arc campaign. Yeah, I, I like the idea of instead of just having a MacGuffin, you have a, a MacGuffin that you spread out you know, at the end of various steps of your, your storylines. And then you bring them all together and turn them into the one thing that they had to find. Like it, it oftentimes feels a little bit of a letdown when it's when the, the solution to your puzzle is, oh, uh, go find this artifact and, and do something with it. If you're going to find pieces of this artifact, but it at first looks like you are going for one item, which turns out to be multiples like that. That feels like a fun little twist on, you know, something that I've gotten a little tired of. And it is also a useful parallel to what distinguishes the gumshoe system for RPGs, mm -hmm. where part one of the design principles is that the game system doesn't get between the players and their clues. So there's no role that they could fail that they yep. that would end up lacking a clue. Instead, the challenge is in how you combine the clues to reach some inference about where to proceed in the story. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. I would, I'm, I wrote that down. I'm going to be using it. I'm already doing some book stuff, but uh, that idea is really cool. Did this inspire any other ideas for you on how uh, secrets might be contained in Invisible Sun and how to use them in stories? Or do you not want to spoil much for your players? Uh, I'm not too worried about spoiling much for my players. I know that there's only one player that is listening to this right now. Uh Hey, how's it going? Um, so I'm not terribly concerned about spoiling too much. Uh, I am definitely going to be looking into uh, emblems and the Decnomen to see if I can actually come up with something. Because um, those are really intriguing ideas. They would be very challenging. And I'm getting to a point where uh, my players are pretty good at figuring out uh, substitution ciphers. So going to something a little more complicated like an actual image that represents a message that they need to figure out that would be extremely cool if we could do that and actually make it work i think it would be really cool to write up some of that process as you write it and then your experiences in running it for the blog yes it would be cool i'm sure something will be coming on that mysterious note, I think we've completed our discussion of the secrets of the alchemists. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. 
It is available from DriveThruRPG. Check the show notes for a link. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can also find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com, and you can find me at at drscottrobinson on Twitter. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at tex underscore red. Also, you can find us on iTunes now uh, and other podcasting apps, uh, whatever you might use. We should be there. And if you like what you hear, please give us a rating and a review. We hear that's really helpful to have. Thanks. <laughs>